Well, good morning again. Literally, take off one hat and put on the other. I want to take this moment to thank, uh, thank the choir for their, and the praise team for all their hard work leading up to Easter and everything. And um, the only reason the choir is not sitting up here behind me today is because I wanted to see them and uh, be able to look them in the eyes while I was preaching to them. Both Craig and Buster are out today, and so you're stuck with me. Hope that's okay. Hope it's, uh, uh, you enjoy having something new. That's what we're talking about here today. Today is uh, talking about the new things that Jesus does and what he does in our lives. Um, and that's what the passage is about. And I was, um, I, I was a little apprehensive and a little excited at the same time that, that this happened to be the passage that fell in the, ser- in the series that I would get to preach on. You know, Craig told me I didn't have to, but I saw the passage, and you know what, I I need to be able to preach through this particular passage. I need it for myself. Um, You know, when Jesus comes in and he starts rearranging the furniture in our lives, it doesn't always feel good sometimes. And the old things tend to want to cling on, and uh, it takes a little demolition. I was reminded of that this weekend as I was tearing out the subfloor, part of the subfloor in the bathroom that we're trying to fix up. And even though some of that floor was rotten, it wanted to stay as part of the floor. And it took a lot more work than I really wanted to do to get it out and put the new one in. The old, time, old things tend to cling on. Um, and, you know, we've gone through this personally in our lives in the past year, a year ago. Uh, the trajectory of the ministry we felt like God had called us to was going one direction. And then in the space of a few months, he redirected us. And I'll be honest with you, there was a little bit of kicking and screaming because we wanted to hold on to the new. And it became pretty obvious that the old way of doing things had become my way of doing things and not necessarily God's way of doing things. Sometimes God has to take those old things away to remind us that he's in charge. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 2. Begin with verse 18, a passage where Jesus uses three illustrations. I'm going to call them illustrations, even though uh, two of them are technically parables, uh, just so uh, I don't confuse myself, honestly. Uh, but the three illustrations to explain how important it is for us to let go of old things and embrace the new things that Jesus wants to do in our lives. So if you will and you're able, would you stand for reading of God's Word? Chapter 2, begin with verse 18. It says, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine into old wine skins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost in the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wine skins. Let's pray. Father, once again, we just uh, thank you for all that you do. We thank you for the newness, the life that you bring, God. 
We just ask for your blessings upon us that, you, that you'd bless this sermon that's been prepared, God, that you make wise the foolishness of mind, God. If there's anything that I've prepared that's not according to your will, that you'd change it, God, that only the words uh, of your will will be spoken here today and that you would take this, God, and you would uh, speak to somebody today. If there's anyone here who doesn't know you, God, that you would impress yourself upon them, especially in this moment. God, speak to us. Be with us. In the name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So we're going to talk about the new things, the new standards that Jesus brings. And the first thing I want to bring out is a, Jesus brings a new standard of joy. And we're going to look at this illustration of uh, the bridegroom. Uh, so he, he, this, uh, this feast of the bridegroom, and in order to understand what he's talking about the, in these first three verses, verses eight through, 18 through 20, um, I want to talk about first what it meant to fast in these days. There are three main purposes of fasting. The first was to win God's favor. If for some reason you thought that perhaps God uh, had something against you or God was mad at you and, uh, or you had slighted God in some way, uh, you, without knowing, you may uh, feel compelled to fast to try to win back his favor. The second reason to fast was, for, uh, was to mourn, whether uh, a sin and grief, this is more of a, an inward reflection of, of what you've been going through, sin or grief. You would certainly mourn if you had lost someone close to you, uh, but you might also mourn your sin condition or mourn the consequences of your sin choices. The third reason the fast was to seek the kingdom of God, and certainly at at, at this particular time, uh, they wouldn't have had a full understanding of what the kingdom of God uh, looked like as we we do today in the church age. It's because Jesus is in the middle of establishing it, so they they didn't quite understand it. He's he's working on that right now, and we get the benefit from that. But the idea is the same, that by fasting, they would become more unified to the spiritual identity of God and more detached from worldly things. What you need to know is that the Old Testament law only prescribed one fast, and that was at the Day of Atonement. Any other fasting was meant to be voluntary, secretive, and in accordance to what what they may have felt led to do at that particular time for one of those three reasons. But the Pharisees were fasting twice weekly as part of their religious routine. They thought they needed a perpetual sense of mourning and grief in order to be good scholars of the law and good servants of God. It seems some of John's disciples had adopted a similar practice, though there is some argument that they may have still been mourning the death of John the Baptist. Yet here we see the disciples of Jesus, they're not fasting and they're not observing a regular bi-weekly time of repentance and mourning before God like the Pharisees. And the question is asked, why not? Well, they didn't need to. If you look at those three reasons for fasting, first of all, to seek favor, Jesus was present was with them. God's favor and forgiveness had been granted and was there among them. They didn't need to seek God's favor. It was there. They didn't need to mourn. They had no reason to mourn because Jesus was the source of all their comfort and joy. He was right there with them. Uh, They didn't have to seek the kingdom because the kingdom was at hand right in their midst. It would have been inappropriate to fast at a wedding and it was inappropriate to fast in the presence of Jesus. And that was the whole point of this first illustration of the bridegroom. When the kingdom of God is here, when your source of joy and forgiveness is sitting right in front of you, what need is there to fast? 
By contrast, I want you to understand that these disciples, they had to endure something that we really don't understand. They got to spend real, intimate, close time with the incarnate Jesus Christ, their Savior and Messiah. They were with him. They ate with him. They slept with him. They, they sat at his feet. They listened to him. Real time. And then they had to watch him leave. We don't understand what that would have felt like. When you've had that level of closeness to Jesus and then it has been removed, then you know what sorrow is about. And that's what Jesus is saying, that there will come a time when they will fast. You will, they will have a real reason to fast. It's because Jesus is the new standard of joy. That's what we need to get from this. He is the new standard of our joy. The way to God was not through religious practices, but through joyful association with Jesus. The way to God was not through physical discomfort, but through the joy of being in the presence of our Savior. The, the way to God was, uh, was not through perpetual mourning and grief, but through celebrating the restoring work of Jesus. Jesus is what was real. And he was right there. You know, thank you, uh, you know, breaking up all of that, 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 that uh, old plywood, stirred up some mildew and stuff. And so it's, I haven't recovered yet. In our house, it is a sad, sad day when we are out of chocolate. It's true. There's, there's always to be found chocolate. We, we have been known to, uh, to, to go to the semi-sweet bag of baking chocolate and just pour chips in our hands when, when we're out of chocolate. And, and if we're out of that stuff, something is really bad. We become chocolate snobs. We know what good chocolate tastes like. We know what bad chocolate tastes like. Um, growing up, all I had was the bad chocolate, and I didn't know any better. And now after knowing what real chocolate is supposed to taste like, what the real stuff is, I realized that that old stuff I used to get at Easter time, look, all right, y'all just got a bunch of Easter chocolate. Y'all should know what I'm talking about. It is not real chocolate. It is wax pretending to be chocolate. <laughs> all right? It's not the real thing. It's a shadow of the real thing pretending to be the real thing. Humanity's standard of joy, what we think is joy, is just an imitation of real joy. What we call joy is nothing compared to the joy that is found in Christ. What we call sorrow is nothing compared to a life of not knowing Christ. Jesus redefines any human notion of joy and sorrow we may think we know, so much so that we can define both joy and sorrow in terms of our relationship with Jesus or lack thereof. He is the center and the cause of true joy. There are many of you in this room and know exactly what I'm talking about. You've experienced that joy that can only come from a close relationship with Christ. And that joy uh, is well, may, may be welling up within you right now. It's okay. You can smile. You can shout amen. It's not going to mess me up. But there may be some in this room that realize your joy is superficial. It's imitation. You may be spending more time on the side of sorrow and you'd really like something to change. You know, I always caution people from using our emotions as a barometer of our spiritual well-being. We are emotional beings, 
And emotions are a part of our design. You need to realize this. Emotions are part of how we were created. Having an emotional religious experience is not the same thing as having an encounter with Jesus. There are plenty of people that have emotional religious experience at football games. Our emotions are human characteristics. They can be manufactured. Our emotions can lie to us. Being in the presence of God certainly does activate all kinds of emotions within us. I'm not saying otherwise, but emotions are not a reliable indicator of the movement of the Holy Spirit. That being said, there is a difference in the joy and happiness we might feel when everything's going right in our lives and that deep-rooted joy that can only come from the presence of Jesus in our hearts. There is a difference between those difficult emotions that we have to wrestle with as Christians when things aren't always going right and the deep-rooted misery we might experience when we don't know, have Jesus at all within us. There's a difference between real joy and fake joy. There's a difference between real joy and fake, um, real sorrow and fake sorrow. Some of you have, have every reason, every reason to be happy and have joy, and it's just not there. You're miserable and you don't know why. That's because you need Jesus to be your standard of joy and not something else, either for the first time or maybe you need to renew your commitment to find your joy in Him again. And for those of you who are going through some rough patches, and I know there are some godly people that, that are, and you're still clinging to that joy of Christ, but you're wrestling with some stuff that hurts. Hang on. Today may be a day of fasting for you, but the bridegroom is coming back and you have not been forgotten. The second illustration Jesus talks about is this patch of unshrunk cloth onto a new garment. This particular uh, passage of uh, Jesus talking about these three things happens in Mark uh, as well as in Matthew and in Luke. And uh, in Luke, Luke's version of this, uh, you'll find in chapter 7, he adds a, a, a small detail to this thing about the cloth that I think really kind of brings this, brings this into focus. So I, I want to I tell you about that little detail. So Luke, Luke tells us that the patch didn't come from a random piece of, of, of scrap cloth, okay? It came from a fully constructed new garment, unworn, unwashed, undyed. It's fresh, it's new, it's full of all kinds of possibilities. And the patch is ripped out of, uh, the best piece is ripped out of this new garment and used to fix an old torn garment. No one would do that. You know, a lot of, you, a lot of us bought new, new clothes for Easter, Right? That's, that's what we do as Baptists. We go buy new, new Easter clothes and have potlucks. Man, what if your wife said, you know, I've got this really old Easter dress. I really like it. It's my favorite, but it's got cut in it. And she goes off to Belk. That's what we, what we shop at here in Camden. She goes off to Belk. She gets a brand new dress. So this is a close enough color. I'm going to cut a big hole out of the skirt in this thing and patch my old dress. What would you say? It's ridiculous. No one would do that. 
That's, that's the illustration here with, with the detail that Luke gives us. That's what, the, that's what we're talking about. You not only ruined the new garment, but the old one is made worse because the fabrics are just incompatible. They're not the same. They're not shrunk. And Jesus is using this to say that you can't pick out the best parts of what he's doing, the new Christianity that he's in the process of building. You can't pick out the parts that you like and use it to fix a broken religious system based on the law of Moses. That's what he is literally trying to get across here. See, the law of Moses was never meant to bring about salvation. Salvation comes only through Christ. The law was meant to point people to Christ and to prepare their hearts to receive the Messiah when he would come. When you look back at the time that the law was given, Israel was still struggling with all of these paganistic tendencies and these pagan worship practices they had picked up in Egypt. And you watched them over the years as they go through, as they travel and they wander around, they encounter new cultures and they, and they, they adopt some of these pagan rituals. They try, to, they try to glue it on to their religious system. Incorporating these things into to the worship of God. And it didn't work. It didn't work. It took exile. It took losing everything that gave them identity. It took a total, total 100% reliance on God to, to come to the rescue. It took rebuilding their home from the ground up. And sometime, uh, before they realized what they were doing, and sometime between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that, that gap we have between the Old Testament and the New Testament, one of the fascinating things that happens is that they become singularly focused on God and God alone. They're no longer tempted by pagan rituals. They, it's so, almost to a fault. They become so dogmatic to their worship, to their worship through the law of Moses that not even the Roman pantheon of gods could tempt them to blasphemy. And so it's no mistake that it's at this point when Israel was most ready to focus on God and God alone and not listen or be tempted by other gods, when they finally figured out what the very first commandment meant to not have any other gods before him, and they had a single-minded hope in the coming of the Messiah, it's no mistake that this is when the Messiah came. But the law was never meant to save them. And they were still clinging so close to the law as a source of their salvation that they couldn't even recognize the Messiah sitting right in front of them. The old system was broken. It had become their idol. They no longer worshipped pagan gods, but they worshipped their religious system instead. Where the old system was supposed to prepare them for the Messiah... Here was the Messiah. This is what Jesus meant when he said he didn't come to destroy the law but to fulfill it. He was everything that the law was pointing to. That being said, you wouldn't rip out the best part of Jesus, the best part of what he did and was doing, say, let's say the cross and the resurrection. And you wouldn't just slap it on to the existing Judaism. The story of the cross is too powerful. The personality of the Messiah is too dominant. It would rip Judaism apart, and it did. Indeed, we find evidence that that, that that very thing happened in many places where people tried to mix the two. Paul dealt with this on numerous occasions. 
If you want to see it in black and white, as clear as you can, go read the book of Galatians. Where he talks about the fact that you can't rely on the law. You have to rely on Jesus. The law of Moses had become their standard for living. And Jesus is saying that they need a new standard. Not a patch for something broken. But something new and exciting and whole. You know, many times when a, a church, uh, when, when a pastor leaves a church and moved, God calls them on to another opportunity, a church will call an interim to fill the, uh, fill the position temporarily until they could fill the office completely. It's a, a placeholder for the pastor until the pastor comes. The law of Moses was the interim. But now the prophet, the priest, and the king had come. They didn't even see it. Jesus is not interested in patching an old religious system. He wants to bring new garments. These people needed a new way to live. They needed to let go of the shadow of God's love and mercy and turn to the incarnation of God's love and mercy. They needed to stop letting the law be their standard and let Jesus be their standard. They needed to uh, turn away from this final idol of legalism and turn to the only one who is worthy of their worship. They needed to take off the old torn garment and clothe themselves in the new life that only comes through Jesus Christ. He is the new standard of living. And when we start wearing the new life of Jesus, everybody notices. Everybody can see it. What does this all, all this mean to us? What does this all mean? Well, maybe it means this. Maybe you're here and you've been living in a standard of religion that you've had your entire life. Maybe it came from your parents. Maybe it came from your grandparents. Maybe you picked it up at some point along the way early in life. Maybe you've just worked hard all these years to just have good moral habits. But regardless, it may boil down to simply this, that you think there exists a set of rules and regulations that if you obey them well enough, it'll be sufficient for salvation. Maybe along the way you've cherry-picked some of the more exciting things about Christianity, doing mission work, leading Bible studies, and you've added these to your set of rules, like a patch on an old garment. But the rules are broken. They won't save you. You can't be good enough. Jesus wants to do something new in your life. He didn't come to give you more rules, but to set you free from the rules. Because hear this, a life that seeks after the heart of Christ will find righteousness through obedience, and the rules will sort themselves out. It's amazing what, how many things sort themselves out when we focus on Christ and Christ alone. After all, Christ came as the fulfillment not the replacement. But if the rules are our focus, then the rules become our idols. Christ should be the object of our worship and our standard of living. 
Don't patch the old garment. Wear the new. The third thing in the last illustration of the wineskins is in, in a lot of the ways is similar to the cloth. Once again, he's emphasizing the basic incompatibility of the old way and the new work that he is going to do through the church. But there's a subtle difference between the two, and I think it's, it's worth exploring. Uh, you see, with the cloth, if it's inappropriate to patch the old, then your option, your next option is to wear the new. It's the image of an outward appearance. But here the new wine is introduced into the wineskins. New wine uh, would continue to produce a certain amount of carbon dioxide, which would cause the skin to expand. The skin needed to be unstretched. It needed to be pliable so that it could handle that kind of expanding pressure. So new wine went into new skins, and the skin itself conformed and shaped according to the needs of the expanding pressure inside of it, according to the needs of the wine. In essence, the skin received this identity and its purpose from the wine within it. The old wine skins, which had been shaped and received identity from something else, could not contain the new. It didn't have the flexibility So whereas the garment was a picture of an outward expression, here we have the image of a willingness to be conformed by what's inside. Jesus brings us new identity when we allow the Holy Spirit to stretch us in ways we would have never imagined, to be newly conformed to a shape that He wants us to have, not the shape that we build for ourselves. And Jesus is saying here that the old religious ideas, these systems that we put around ourselves to try to understand God cannot handle the fullness of the gospel. The rigidness of humanity is not flexible enough to contain the full creative power of our God. When we expend our energy in trying to understand all the mysteries of God in the gospel, then we essentially begin to harden ourselves and we become unused instead we're focusing on the wrong things when we should be focusing on God instead and let him shape us now we need religious development we do it's our tool that helps us to understand it helps us to worship God as best we can but when the walls of dogmatism become so inflexible that we no longer allow God to stretch us and expand us and challenge us by means of his infinite creative power, then we've tried to force God into a box of our own design. You know, as a great illustration, first of all, let me just say, I don't watch this show. Some of you may. I don't, I'm not going to, I'm not condoning this show, but there's a great illustration about this that comes from the the cartoon the simpsons okay i'm going to use an illustration from the simpsons imagine that in this particular episode homer simpson finds himself on an island and he's sort of he's sort of running away from some stuff there but he gets he gets saddled with the the responsibilities of being a missionary to these natives here and um, at one point they begin to build a chapel on this island 
And Homer is instrumental in helping them do that. And they finish the chapel. And they're standing back and they're looking at it. And Homer Simpson says this. I may not know much about God, but I have to say we built a pretty nice cage for him. And I can't help but think how true that is today in so many places. Uh, We have considered God as caged within our walls. We don't let him out. The truth is, in, in this illustration, Jesus is saying that God won't be contained in our box. He won't be trapped in our cage. He will break the box. He will burst the wineskin of the church and of our lives if we don't allow him to shape us according to his purposes. Rather than spending our time trying to understand God in terms of rigid human definitions, we should spend more time dwelling in the presence of God with a flexibility that is willing to become whatever God wants us to become to be shaped into a life of his design and to adopt an identity defined by the presence of God within us, not an identity defined by us. Maybe you're here today and you've begun to realize how inflexible you've become to the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life. God wants to use you in great and awesome ways, but for whatever reason, you've hardened yourself and you're refusing to be conformed to what God wants you to do. Jesus is saying here that something's got to give. Something's got to give. If we don't become flexible to his leading, then things are going to begin falling apart to such an extent that we might find ourselves unusable. We become a broken and miserable person longing for God to pour that new wine into us when the truth is we've already hardened ourselves against his leading and spilled the new wine he gave us to begin with. God wants to shape you in a way that only he can. It may not fit your rules. It may not be anything you originally wanted for your life. But do you have the kind of relationship with God that is flexible enough to allow him to stretch you in ways you couldn't have imagined? This is an issue of identity. Whether it is defined by you or defined by Jesus. Who do you want to be? Jesus brings new identity. We need to let go of the old inflexibility and let Jesus transform us into the shape he wants us to have. This passage teaches three things about the newness of Christ. That we should have a new standard of joy. True joy comes from being in the presence of our Savior. That we should have a new way of living. Christ is the object of our worship. He is our standard. We should have a new identity transformed to a shape designed by Christ. Christian, I want to, as, as I begin to close up here, I want to speak to you first, Christian. Maybe you're here and you need joy again. 
You've tried lots of ways to find it, but nothing seems to be working. Perhaps today you need to spend some time in the presence of Jesus and let him speak into your heart. It's hard to mourn. It's hard to mourn when you're at the table with your Savior. Maybe you're here and you've been spending all your energy trying to follow all the rules a good Christian should follow. It's exhausting. And you're tired, burned out, discouraged. But the good news is Christ sets you free. He just needs you to spend time with Him and learn to be obedient to His voice. It's time to spend less energy worshiping uh, ourselves and worrying about religious requirements and more time with our relationship with Christ. Maybe you're here and you've been resisting the prompting of the Spirit within you to stretch you and grow you in ways that you really don't want to. He's calling you to do something. You know it. And you've been telling him no. Can I just say something? Stop it. Listen, the creator of the universe is asking you personally to do something that he designed just for you to do and he thinks you'll be good at it. Stop telling him no. Stop being inflexible. Trust God to shape you in the way he wants. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, I want you to know that all this applies to you too. Christ died on a cross to pay the price for your sins. He was buried and rose from the dead to give you hope and to give you forgiveness. You'll never know real joy until you've experienced this kind of forgiveness. You'll never, never live a good enough life to earn your own salvation. Salvation only comes through the cross and it's freely given to whoever wants it. And you'll never really understand who you are as a created human being until you allow God to give you the identity that he's designed for you to have. Would you do that today? Would you do that today? Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you so much for the newness that you bring. We thank you so much for all that you've done. We thank you for what you're going to do. And God, help us to not be a people that spend so much time looking at the old that we, that we are blinded to the new possibilities of what you can do, God. And I pray that if there's anybody here that is still clinging to something old in their lives that you want them to get rid of, that today will be the day that they lay it down. And they trust you to begin something new and amazing in their lives. Be their joy. Be their standard of living. Be their identity, God. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. This praise team sings. Let's stand. Would you come? Would you come?